Welcome to Cloud Radio, made for full-stack cloud operators. Cloud Radio covers all aspects of the business of software. Hi, everyone. We've got CJ Gustafsson. He's the uh, CFO of Parts Tech, which is a vertical SaaS in the automotive sector. They just raised a Series C of $35 million led by OpenView. Obviously, that's a very relevant topic for today. And CJ is also a very active writer, mostly metrics, which is a Substack newsletter with thousands of subscribers and you know, kind of unique one as well in terms of like value added features, in terms of equity compensation advice, and pretty authoritative coverage of a lot of like CFO type topics for SaaS. So reached out to him. He was kind enough to join the cast. So here we have him. CJ, do you want to give any more of your background? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on. I've actually been listening to the podcast and also watched it live on LinkedIn a couple of times. This is pretty neat. I'm a big fan of your newsletter and all your content. Thank you. So pump the jam out on all things, you know, SaaS metrics and, and finance stuff. But yeah, like you said, I'm currently CFO at Parts Tech, a Series C B2B marketplace, and we serve the automotive space. So you can kind of think of us as kayak.com, but for auto parts. So like last time you needed to get your brakes fixed, the repair shop probably used our platform actually to find the most readily available parts so you could get back on the road. And so at the moment, we're serving over 15,000 garages across the US today. In terms of me, I started my career on the funding side of the table. I had stints in consulting and private equity after having a couple of couple of coffee there and moved over to the operating side of the table to help scale high growth startups. So most recently I was at a cybersecurity company and before that I was at a backup and recovery company and now in the vertical SaaS space. Like you mentioned, I, I read a newsletter called Mostly Metrics, mostlymetrics.com, uh, shameless plug. Um, and you know that when you write about metrics for fun on weekends and nights, you're probably a pretty big benchmarking dork. So I'll admit that. And uh, yeah, we're, we're coming up on 30,000 subscribers most of whom are CFOs and COOs and, and really anyone out there who's an operator who cares about their company's performance. So that's my passion project and something that I think has a virtuous cycle of keeping me sharp at work on uh, the trends. Awesome. Yeah, it's a great newsletter and we'll include the show notes and kind of given your background, you you know, earlier in your career, you were at Providence Equity, but now you're a CFO. You probably have a pretty interesting view on differentiating between investor metrics and operator metrics. Surprisingly little out there on that dichotomy between the two. I know Dave Kellogg right. uh, had a good post. We'll include that in the show notes, but I want to hear from you, right? Where you're living and breathing it as a CFO. What are the big differences between investor metrics and operator metrics? Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to try to do my best Dave Kellogg impression. He's one of the guys out there that I look up to as a, as a thought leader. So which metrics to use has always been a point of friction between investors and operators since way back in you know the original Sandhill days. And the crux of it is that our investors are using metrics to make you know binary decisions about you know part capital in this company versus that one. And operators are trying to use metrics that allow them to make data day-to-day decisions. I mean by make decisions is decide which levers to pull at what times to make a change in the business occur, to take action. And you see investors use metrics that are usually compound metrics. And so a compound metric is one that has multi-variable inputs. So in other words, there isn't a clear single lever that you can pull within your operations to improve how something is going, say, if you don't like the output. You know, Kellogg often uses CAC payback 
as an example. So if your CAC payback is crap, it's kind of like, well, what do you change? Is it your average deal size? Is it your churn rate? Is it your gross margin? There's a lot to unpack there. But to you know an investor, the overall signal this provides is valuable. You can make a binary investment to invest or not invest decision. But as an operator, it's like drinking through a fire hose. Like, what do I pick up first to try to make a change here? And you know, I was thinking about this topic today, and I'll give you an, an even more basic example. And this is a super basic one, but one that's come up for us at Parts Tech is average GMV or sales per account and an account for us as a shop. And so I think, you know, it's an excellent metric when you're an investor trying to take a step back and forecast out how big the market is and what the forecast over the next five years could be. So as a company, you know, how do you add ARR? You figure X amount of shops at Y GMV over, you know, Z years. Okay, I got it. But, you know, me, CFO, there's no single stakeholder action I can take within my company or like point to one person and say, hey, man, you own GMV per shop. It's like not that simple. I can't miraculously change that overnight. That's a compound metric. So I have to take a step deeper and go to the atomic metrics. GMV per account, it's really a function at the end of the day of your average order size times the average number of orders. And now we're talking because I do know how to impact the average order size and the number of orders, whether that be taking distinct actions to, you know, put another customer success rep on them to to call more often to prod them to get their order count up, or if it's a pricing change to offer more discounting. But yeah, that's the high level, you know, take on that. And I know there are also issues around comparability that come up too, which which I can always touch on if you'd like. That's a really good one. And, you know, from the vantage point of a CFO or an operator, what are some metrics that investors probably over-index on relative to their you know underlying issues or underlying quality? Like CAC yeah. kind of ha- actually has too much lags in it that you're really not capturing it if you look at sales cycles and marketing deployment cycles. You're kind of looking at the wrong things. Like So what are the metrics that investors might be kind of missing the boat on relative to the realities? Yeah, I'll, I'll die on the hill that LTV to CAC is, is kind of a, a wacky metric. Metric. And that's because it's like the most compound of compound metrics of what's going into it. And it varies period to period. Like if you look at a company's LTV to CAC on a quarterly basis and you trended that out, it's going to look like one of those like inflatable wacky willies at like the, the used auto car lots that, you know, just swing back and forth. Like it'll bump around like crazy. And then it's like, well, how do you change that? And then you have to dive into, well, what are the components of LTV? And then what are the components of CAC? And it's really hard as a startup, especially with limited data, limited historical data to even get to LTV. Like in order to accurately calculate that, you should probably know how long a customer can stick around for. You know, you've only been monetizing your business for two years. It's like, what do you just assume it's five years? You know, I don't blame anybody. I've totally done it. But at the same time, it's like, you're kind of making that up because like, what if the business isn't even around in five years? You don't have proof of that. And then you have to segment it even further. Like, are you just making a broad-based assumption across the company of saying, you know, everybody, SMB, mid-market enterprise, all of the same lifetime, you know, that, that's a big uh, leap of faith to make. It would be interesting to get your viewpoint on like squaring this tension might be, you know, on the operator side, sharing more of the atomic metrics with your investors, yeah. right? Yeah. And, but then that also runs the risk, right? You're overwhelmed or that all of a sudden, you know, from the operator's perspective, do you really want to have to speak to every tiny, tiny, tiny driver at all times? Oh man, I've been there before too. Like I remember I had this SaaS dashboard at a previous company that I would maintain and I counted it one day. I was counting 12 different variations of renewal and retention. 
So you had gross dollar retention, net dollar retention, gross account retention, renewal rate in period. Like it just went on and on and on. And then eventually we got to the point where we actually stack ranked which ones investors cared about most and which ones we cared about most. And we made sure like the top three that we cared about and they cared about were on there. I think at the end of the day, we ended up with four to six, say, you know, cuts of what it means to keep a customer around. I'll call it that. But yeah, it you do run the risk of like, sending too much noise at somebody and then like not having the signal or if the investor isn't in the business day to day you may scare them away which you don't want to do either yeah it's it's an interesting dynamic and kind of like observing SaaS over the years you know the sophistication kind of has been going up linearly right in terms of what's discussed <laughs> what's shared what's available and you'd like to think you know people can handle more but it's an interesting balance right for, on all sides it totally is well what are the top metrics you're focused on you know at parts tech right now like kind of your top five top ten when you run the yeah. business yeah for us we look at orders per day that's a big one for us because it's a leading indicator of, of future growth the way that our shop count and forecasting typically you know trends is you know they'll try our platform and then there'll be a behavior change after x amount of orders and we want to get them to that aha moment that behavior change as fast as possible and this is kind of where comparability comes into play a bit you know, we stack rank all the time what the best metrics are. And I think that you have to have nuance when you look at a company that has a different business model sometimes in your other portfolio companies. And what I mean by that is, you know, we're not a typical SaaS company. We charge the end customer the same amount every month. We charge the supplier, not the garage, which further complicates it, but it's a usage-based model where the number of orders per month impacts how we charge. And say if there are less days in one month to another, that makes a big difference. So I've had investors who, you know, rightly in their minds suggest that you just multiply, you know, what you ended the month at by 12. But even though that's simple, it's probably not comparable to other companies in the portfolio because not every month has the same number of business days. So the average, this goes to like something in the business that you start to like realize you have to get really close on that I didn't know about like before I came here. The average month is 22 business days, but March this year had 24. Yeah. Okay. So if you didn't take that into consideration, you might actually miss a 9% swing in either direction that really isn't reflective of the underlying business's health, but it's really just reflective of, hey, the number of at-bats you had because you had more days. And so you could actually have a month where you do less sales, but more on a day count adjusted basis. So in all our metrics, we also try to take seasonality into account. And that's what I think really good investors do as well. They apply seasonality for different business models and different go-to-market motions. So for us, we see a spike in sales when people get their checks back from the IRS actually in the spring, and they go and do that maintenance that they've been putting off of their cars. That's something I would not have known from outside coming into this business. Or, you know, I've also worked at SaaS companies where there's a seasonality in Q2 for selling to governments because that's when they're kind of emptying their budgets and coffers. So I think for any metric that you look at, you do have to take the lens of not just what it was, but when it occurred. Okay. So orders per day are your top one. How many kind of more traditional SaaS metrics do you guys have? Because I imagine this is a pretty sticky thing when a service shop kind of implements you. It's not like yeah. they're going to turn it off nine months later. Trailing 12 month net dollar retention is a big one for us. That's probably number two. We do look at CAC payback period, even though that is a compound metric, because like it is good to know on a trailing quarterly basis, how, like what you're putting into the go-to-market engine and what you're getting back out, especially as a company that's trying different experiments with, you know, inbound versus outbound. And then, you know, we also try to look at growth in shops. That's like the biggest indicator as well, like what our footprint is, because even if the revenue 
revenue doesn't show up today, you know, over the next six to eight months, we know it will show up and that helps inform our forecasting over time. So I guess to summarize, you know, orders per day, net dollar retention, CAC payback period, and uh, shop counter. That's probably the Mount Rushmore for us. And I guess this would be a good question because there's always people trying to figure these things out and not everyone has, you know, a very traditional business like ServiceNow or something, but you've got some usage based, some, you know, relatively small ticket. It sounds like there might be some delay between when someone gets on your platform and really starts Mm -hmm. ramping. So you might have kind of overall a SaaS business, but pretty unique dynamics that a lot of SaaS businesses actually are that way. So when you're out fundraising, like how did you balance that? Like, right, in terms of communicating the story, communicating kind of adjusted metrics or the nuances of seasonality? Like what are some advice for a CFO in your shoes with an analogous business? I think you got to explain what excites you about the business now and what excites you about the business tomorrow and tell a story with the metrics of how you're getting there. And for us, it was, look, we're less than 10% penetrated in this market today. And we've done this with our shop count over time. And you're going to see this revenue show up. And here's why it's going to look that way. Here's what like a historical shop looks like if I just break it down of what they spend on a monthly basis. And that's really what it what excited us. And I think you also talk about the vision of, you know, what you can layer on over time. So say, you know, our platform product was the first one that we came out with for aftermarket parts. And then you layer on a SaaS product for tires and for analytics. And within vertical SaaS, there's a pretty good playbook of other services to layer on over time once you're in that customer count. So I think it's, like I said, you know, painting that story of what excites you today and and what's going to excite you tomorrow and how you're going to get there. All right. And while we're on that topic, right, just raised the Series C in May of 2023, pretty much a shutdown growth equity market this year. Like any learnings from that that you could pass along to like other CFOs, operators listening to this? Yeah, I would say to play long-term games with long-term people, I'm lucky to have investors who put in the time to understand our business model, to understand how we have scaled to date and how we want to run experiments in the future. And also like I look at investors as all having different skews. And what I mean by that is, yeah, they're all giving you capital. That's like one checkbox, but you know, they all specialize in different things. So like I'll give you an example. OpenView, who we work with is fabulous on the recruiting front. We don't have a large recruiting you know, department as a company, but they help find talented people for us. They're also really good with their advice from product-led growth and helping there. You know, Insight, another one of our investors is really great with all the analytics and data they have from, you know, their 400 or however many portfolio companies it is. So getting into the mind of that, their on-site team that can lend advice and, you know, a myriad of topics under the sun. But yeah, I I think there are other investors out there, hypothetically, that, you know, you may want to team up with them, not just for the money, but maybe they can introduce you to customers. Like that's a very valuable skew for investors. So I think it's kind of figuring out what they're uniquely qualified to help you do. And like, they're also investors like Tiger and they're and the part of their skew is that they don't really bug you after they give you the money. Like they're pretty quiet. If you call on them, I'm sure they'll help, but they're not going to be you know, uptight on you either. They're kind of more silent capital, I'd call it. And what type of investor do you prefer? Like a kind of weekly reporting cadence or do you prefer a Tiger style? Like 
they kind of just leave you alone. Yeah, I'm going to take the cop-out answer and say something kind of in the middle. I think weekly is a little too much just because your head's down operating the business. But talking to them monthly is always helpful because while you may know how to run the business better, they've seen, they've had more at-bats of just seeing different business problems. So having someone from outside to bounce ideas off of, it's kind of like, you know, you can't just work from inside your house all day and like never really interact with somebody. You get to talk to other people in the outside world. And, you know, you always want to drink the own Kool-Aid on your company, but at the end of the day, you're only as good as your metrics are and you want to be able to have some comparability and, and see you know what else is going on in the market and how you compare so talking to people i think on a monthly basis is really good and then having a deeper dive at the board meeting but something that you know i strongly feel is that like you shouldn't be using the board meeting to have like these big breaking announcements of like good or bad this happened like then you're probably too far away from your investors if you're saving up all that and that's kind of i think where communication can go off the rails with investors okay i was putting you on the spot maybe getting you in trouble <laughs> And we'll move over to another topic. And it sounds like it's something you're going through right now with OpenView and kind of your new role is building out a team and, you know, recruiting talent. And let's just say you're a technical founder or non-business founder. You've hit traction where you know you're going to actually need a real finance organization. Yeah. even a small finance team to get going. Right. Like what advice would you have for them in terms of like pattern recognition? This is the type of talent to look for. Go look in these places. These are the characteristics you want. Like just some broad based advice for a, a technical founder. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, like regardless of what stage you're at, I always try to screen for what I call financial athletes. So kind of a corny term, but you know, I believe it's someone who's willing to jump in and solve really any sort of finance or strategy related problem. Problem and has you can tell just like this general curiosity paired with this confidence to go deeper on stuff the org needs help with so curious and confident I think like being curious just isn't enough you have to be confident enough to like chase that down do the work in your own time and actually ask for more and I don't mean a generalist though when I say a financial athlete I, I think a generalist are really good when you're like seed through series B that means you can kind of hop in and do everything you're like mile wide but an inch deep what I mean by financial athlete is someone who's really game to try anything they have this competitive spirit to learn something new whenever they need to and get up to speed as fast as possible. And, you know, they can eventually, you know, scale to go deeper over time and evolve into that subject matter expert by a series C or D that you need. But yeah, I do, I do think like in general, there are different life cycles that you think about a finance team through. I, I wrote a post about this. I called it the life cycle of bean counters. But yeah, there's, there are kind of three categories, startup or pre 10 million growth or post 10 million in revenue and mature, which is over a hundred million. And once again, these are like super broad buckets but say you're in the startup or pre 10 million range this is probably pre-series b if you wanted to use like a, a series this is probably a finance team that's actually outsourced or the equivalent of one and a half to two full-time employees so maybe you have a fractional cfo and a bookkeeper and an analyst like that equivalent effort and then you also kind of you know work with payroll providers and, and the like and then you know i came in to this company around you know after they had raised their series b looking to raise a series c at some point and i think that's a team of minimally three and it can scale to 10 to 15 people and your priority hires you know a cfo a controller and an fpna manager i look at the two main arms as you know controller head of accounting to hold down the house be that steady hand day to day and then an fpna manager to help you with the forecasting and the analysis that comes up and that person's definitely a financial athlete that can help with 
all sorts of crazy analysis that may come up. And over time, you know, you kind of scale under those two functions until, you know, you start to become that $100 million company that needs a procurement arm, that needs an accounts receivable team, et cetera. And that's when finance teams get more specialized. You may need a treasurer. You may need a VP of tax. You may need a chief legal officer if legal does sit under finance. And you may need investor relations, something that I've done too, is, is like you approach thinking about going public or as your cap table gets larger. Interesting. And kind of like any good hunting grounds for these financial athletes, like transaction services at a big four yeah. or FP&A yeah. at a series C company or just some common tips or pattern recognition here. Yeah. I think it's people who have seen a lot of business models because they can apply those to whatever your business model may be for that specific company. I'm not saying like I, I had the best background or anything, but like some of the stuff that I had done before was I worked in M&A consulting. So like I went company to company. I kind of saw what good looks like, what bad looks like within like, you know, how companies make money. And then working within FP&A at other companies is valuable because that person has a unique seat to see every department, how it runs. And they, if you're an FP&A, you kind of get like a doctorate in how to ask questions. So you kind of get the ability to go out into the org and ask whatever your curiosity may be about, hey, why do we staff the product team this way? Why are there that many engineers in the front end versus the back end? You just ask all sorts of crazy stuff. And I find those people who come from an FP&A background can also go to the strategy side. They can go to the investor relations side. There are a lot of different things you can do because you've had this unique view of the org, how it makes money, how it rolls up its costs and how it organizes resources. But pattern recognition from outside, say consulting is always good. Investment banking can be good, but really anyone that's hungry to learn about business models and can also do some math and then and then speak to it. I think, you know, the icing on the cake is when you can not only do the math, but you can tell a story with it. That's something I also try to test for in a lot of interviews. So I'll give a case study that does involve some level of numerical work, but then give me the what ifs. What do you put on a billboard after this to tell me the story? Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, that's good advice. I think like there's some takeaways there for folks. And then since we're on the topic of building out teams... And I know on Mostly Metrics, again, your newsletter, you have some content and calculators around equity compensation. Like what are, right? how does all of that work? And like, what are some of your viewpoints here? Yeah. I mean, when I got into the startup world, this whole equity thing was like a complete black box to me. And since then, it's become something I'm super passionate about distilling into concepts that people can understand and how it applies to them. And that's because an equity grant at a startup, it's super intimidating to ask about because it's complex. And, but it's also maybe the single most important negotiation you'll have in your career. And many startup employees forget that the most concentrated asset in their personal financial portfolio, other than maybe their, their house, is their ISO or NSO grant. It's probably sitting in a desk drawer collecting dust somewhere or in a Carta account that you forgot the password to. So I'm definitely keen on taking equity seriously and, and learning how it impacts you financially. And so how can people who are you know part of the Mostly Metrics, I guess you would call it community, kind of like work with you to, to learn their equity packages? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely have a bunch of advice that I've written on there. And then in addition to that, you know, the paid subscribers benchmark what you should ask for in your equity negotiation based on a database that, you know, we built and then uh, some analytics that we run on it and formulas based on how long you've been in your role, last time the company raised, etc. It's something that I had built for myself and my friends who kept asking me questions. That how I think most products usually start and then it kind of evolved into something that I thought I could help other people with. So I decided to give it away as a benefit to to the paid tier. That's very cool. That's very cool. Well, we'll definitely include 
some portion of the equity stuff in, in the show notes as well. And then one last one that we always like to do something like tactical and actionable. What are some of your best interview questions? Like you've clearly had some success, built teams. Yeah. Like how do you find, like what are the ways that you really like cut through, you know, the good versus the great? My favorite question to ask is what was the first job you ever had growing up? Hmm. I think you get to a lot of interesting stories of like, hey, you know, I, I did, uh, you know, I worked in my parents' restaurant or, you know, my dad was a mason and I helped him. And not everybody has that story necessarily, but you kind of get to know the person, what they started out doing. And then if they can connect that in some way, that's what you're also looking for to what they're doing today, what they learned from it, how it kind of shaped them. The story is usually better if it's like a crappier job that you started out with. So, so that's one question. Another one I like to ask is what's your favorite? favorite metric to track what's a metric you think is overrated or or overplayed and i also you know like to ask people what, what they want out of the job where they want to be in five years because when i hire someone I'm, I'm ideally hiring for not where we were yesterday but where we're going and if it's someone who speaks to something that was six months behind us i know that's probably not a good fit and you want people who want to grow with the company and sharing its success and i think that's something like i've done a lot of thinking about kind of when the best time to join a company is and, and how you can fit in. And you kind of want to test for if that person is a right fit for that chapter and kind of the, the company's journey. And let's, you know, tying that back to the whole equity compensation, like when is the best time to join a company kind of risk reward, you know, everything in that regard. <laughs> sure. This it, definitely isn't financial advice. It's just kind of one guy <laughs> riffing on it with you. But I think like, if you're trying to maximize your equity outcome and you think like, hey, I have five startups in me throughout my career, you know, maybe I'm at each one for four to six years or something. And I also want to maximize the amount you can learn because that's also an asset. Like when you're first starting in your career, the scarce asset isn't salary. It's not cash. It's what you can learn that puts you in a better position for the next role. But I, I think the ideal scenario would probably be a post series B startup, one with more than 20 million on the balance sheet, you know, maybe 75 to 150 current employees, annual growth rates north of 75% and just recently repriced their 409A. Why I think that, so like recent funding, this means they aren't going out of business anytime soon. Check, less survival risk. So at least you have two years on your resume of working there. And they're probably better financed than their competition if they just raise so like that's a leg up then product market fit so if an investor gave them a sizable series b that probably validates to you at least that they have product market fit so that's another check someone else like you're kind of doing your research through someone else's research through the credibility that the investor brings then you got like the equity upside of the equation so i think the major equity you know jumps happen between series b to c or c to d so that's still on the table and then you know you have chapters left in the story and time to write your own chapter within that company story. And that's why I love this series kind of BCD range. You know, you have ability to contribute to a company on a high growth trajectory. That's something that, you know, I think everyone should be lucky enough to do at least once in their career, because, you know, it's fun to build something that's moving fast and to be able to contribute and put your fingerprint on a business day to day. That's something that's always stuck with me. And then you're also preserving the upside of, you know, maybe it does become a pre-IPO company. Maybe it does go public. And so you, you can tell that story personally of, you know, going from private to public. And at the end of the day, like I find, you know, series B, C, kind of that range, I call it like maximal fun, minimal bureaucracy, but you still get adults in charge, which is important. So that's just one guy's take on it. That's a good take. It kind of sounds like you've taken that, right? Add a B, yeah. just raise the C. You're pretty smart. I, picker, I guess it right? fits. Yeah. I guess it fits. I mean, I think like, 
any time you choose where you work, you're choosing where you're going to make the biggest financial investment of your life at that point from an equity standpoint, which kind of ties back to what we're talking about. And also from a time standpoint, like you can only invest in one place at once. So, you know, you're kind of putting your locking your time into that to that as well. And, you know, people should always kind of look around and say, hey, is this company I'm joining? What does the market look like? Do I think this is relatively under or overvalued? Like you should think about it as an, an investment decision on, on kind of your household's behalf. For sure. For sure. Well, I think that comes to the end of the episode. Where can people find you? We'll, of course, include a lot of stuff in the show notes, but where can they find you on social? You know, what are you oh, yeah. up to these days? Hit Just hit up mostlymetrics.com. Uh, get on the newsletter list. And um, we have a lot of fun. I, I, I say like it's well-researched, but not taken. I don't take myself too seriously. And then, you know, if you're a CFO, or COO and generally care about your company's performance. Uh, that's where the fun goes down. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll, again, we'll include all of that and, you know, really appreciate you getting on the cast and uh, best of luck with everything. Thanks for having me on, man. This was a blast. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks.